it. Welcome to Strata Stories. My name is Thomas Schreiber, and I'm the Director of Marketing here at Strata. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. On today's episode, Paul Singh, the CEO of Strata, talks with Jamie Schreier, the founder of Practice Freedom U. Jamie helps growth-minded practice owners build a more profitable business while working less hours in the clinic. Paul and Jamie talk through how to know if your clinic's model is fundamentally broken from a financial standpoint, the metrics you must know in order to grow your business, how to build your clinic around the life you want, and why you must spend time outside of patient care in order to grow your business. If you'd like to learn more about Strata, head over to stratapt.com or email us at hello at stratapt.com. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. I've only talked to two people in the last month that could actually give me a number. One guy was like, yeah, we're at about $680 a patient to get them in the door. And I was like, okay, so that's great. Now, what's your lifetime value? Obviously, I'm just curious. And he was like, I don't know. We get them in and we try to like treat whatever the episode was and hope they remember us next time. Yeah, I remember we us doing that early on. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people don't even know what their client is even worth to them. Lifetime value is sometimes tougher, uh, depending how long you've been in business, to kind of know what's the chance of them coming back, what's the episode. But you got to know what is the episode of care worth. And on average, I would, you know, I always throw out there probably 1,000 to 1,200 for most insurance-based businesses and cash base is going to be, depending if they're selling packages, but probably a little bit more. High volume places are going to be a little bit less but that's usually the target. So it's like, you know, I like your three multiple. I think that's really good. I, I use the three multiple in, in what you should expect from your therapist, because it's the same thing. You're investing in a therapist. That therapist has to bring out, you know, three times because, you know, you got the salary cost, you got the overhead cost, and you got the profit. And that equals three. I've never seen a business not do well at three, but I've seen a ton of them not do well at 2.5, 2.3. Again, depends on the model, but if it's an insurance-based model, 2.8 and above works. If it's cash-based, you can get away with lower because your overhead's lower. But uh, it's amazing. I just did a talk the other day about that and uh, people are just like, wait a minute, what? Because they don't look at it. They just don't look at it objectively enough. And that's, I just had a conversation with a client this morning. Uh, you know, he's saying, oh, things are going great. I go, perfect. I go, so what's your revenue? Uh, what are you up? What's your profit margin? He goes, I'm working on that. I go, there's no working on that. Because if you don't know, here's what's interesting. If you don't know these numbers, then you don't have a grade of how you're doing. And if you don't have a grade of how you're doing, the next thing is the numbers is a window into the solution. Because the numbers will always tell you what's wrong. It won't tell you why it's wrong. It'll tell you that you know what? You think it's new patients. New patients isn't your problem or, or referrals isn't your problem. Your problem is conversion. I mean, I was talking with a client earlier this week and she's like, Jamie, I'm doing what you're saying and we're not getting new patients. I go, really? So I said, give me your referrals. And she showed me the referrals. I go, you're getting tons of referrals. The problem is she doesn't know how to convert. She's cash-based tutoring company. Uh, she doesn't know how to convert on the phone. So I said, well, 
let's show you our uh, ethical sales process. Showed her in 15 minutes. 48 hours later, she goes, I've done something I've never done in my life. I go, not only did I close this person to a package, but I did it on one call. She gave me a credit card. She scheduled out the entire plan. And she goes, I've never done that before. And I said, great, do it three or four more times this month. <laughs> right. And you know, the reason I bring this up is because when you and I chatted last, one of the things that you talked about, actually two things quite a bit. One was like, what's the end goal? Before you even start the clinic, what's the end goal? And then related to that, the second thing you talked a lot about is that talking about money is not bad. And that it's just been bouncing around in my head now for a couple of weeks. And hear me out for a second. It reminds me, so back in World War II, I'm just a weird nerd. I know random things. So back in World War II, Allied aircraft would come back from battle and they'd have bullet holes in them, right? And so if you can imagine in your mind's eye, like a, like a top-down view of an airplane, these airplanes would come back, they'd have bullet holes in them. And they'd always be like somebody actually plotted them out and you could tell they were always in the same spot. They were on the ends of the wingtips. There were certain spots on the plane where, where it was. Well, allied engineers were like, well, you know what? We're going to armor those spots because that'll make these planes more safe. Turns out one young engineer, I forget his name now, but one young engineer looks at that and says, uh, you guys are all wrong. Don't pay attention to where the holes are because this is a survivor bias. This is like the planes that made it back you got to look at where the bullet holes are not because that's what's causing the fatality. And he was right, actually, that, for example, when you started to think about it that way, you're like, wait a second, there's no bullet holes in the pilot's compartment. Well, that doesn't mean the pilot's compartment is safe. It means that the ones that got hit there went down or the engines or actually the wing spars where actually all the load is. It was actually this like one 10% section of the wings where all the load is. And if you hit that, the whole thing catastrophically fails. So anyway, I only bring that back, that nerdy little bit, because it reminds me of kind of what you're talking about. Because it's sort of like you said something about how everybody's focused on perfecting the craft instead of getting sales. And, and kind of what we're talking about here now is numbers. It's like, you know, how, how do you just kind of like teach this? So if you're up for it, I wanted to kind of hit on this a little bit more because I saw you posted about your PT practice scorecard this morning. And maybe we could talk a little bit about what that is and what that sounds like for people that haven't taken that yet. But then also I wanted to like, depending on how this goes, maybe throw out a couple scenarios and see how you'd coach me. Like if I was that clinician or that practice owner, and to your point, like these calls that you've had, I think it's like, how do you go a little bit more tactical? My point is, I think that a lot of clinics are just not having the conversations that are important. And, you know, whether it's about revenue or sales process, like you just described, and that's the stuff I think we should try to expose more. The more of a conversation that's not being discussed and money is not talked about, you get these people out there, these gurus, these agencies that are talking about referrals. They're not talking about money. They're assuming money because our idea is, oh, if I get lots of referrals, then I'll do the rest of the work and actually get paid. And it's like, well, that's not the case. That's certainly not the case. So to dive into money, to dive into the psychological barriers of money, dude, let's do it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you would probably know this better than me, but it seems like when I think about the average practice out there, it seems to me like it's a leaky bucket. The closest anybody gets to talking about money is just how do I get more patience? When in every other industry, we know that it's cheaper to maintain an existing customer than to acquire a new one. Like every other industry knows that, but that information sort of hasn't made it to healthcare yet, at least not openly. So it's interesting. I think the information is out there. I was responding on something today, one of my, one of my friends, 
And I said, you know, something along those lines. I said, we are very intelligent people, right? You can't be not intelligent, IQ, left brain intelligent, and be a physical therapist, chiropractor, occupational therapist, anybody, anything in medicine. You got to be pretty smart to be there. But the idea is if you quizzed people, gave them a test like they're used to, put some little true, false, and some A, B, C, D, multiple choice, and you asked them about that, I think they would know the answer. I think, Paul, they would surprise you and say, well, I think it's important to know your metrics because that's going to let you know how you're doing. And that's going to let you know where are the problems because that's a left brain equation. Just like, well, you have to do range of motion and strength and some testing on a patient to confirm possibly your hypothesis of what's going on, but that's going to let you know if it's true. And then you're going to form your assessment and then you're going to create a plan of care. It's exactly what we do. But what's interesting is when you're actually doing it in the clinic, it doesn't resonate. It doesn't convert. So I think we know this stuff, but there's resistance around it. There's deeper stuff going on when we talk about metrics and money and profit. There's very few people that I've ever talked, and I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people on, we call them discovery calls, but let's face it, it's a sales call. It's a call to determine whether or not, you know, this is a good fit and we can help you. Very few people on the call, when I ask them, what is it that you want? What are you looking for? Give me a picture of what you want. Kind of take me what you're seeing out there. Very few, and I'm talking probably less than 2%. We'll say anything around money. Do you think it's because they're scared of talking? Like, and I'm not trying to lead you toward an answer. I'm genuinely curious. Do you think that's because they're the scared of talking about money? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. leading you, the witness. Is it because they're scared of talking about money or because it's easier to talk about other stuff and feel busy? Or I think it's both. You know what it is? I was reading something um, today. I, I must have had a busy day, even though I played tennis for two hours, but evidently I had a busy day because I was reading something around Alex Formosi who's uh, had been in the scene for a while, but he's like really in the scene the last several months because of some of the books he's brought out and stuff. But he talked about the idea that it's not so much we are scared to fail. It's not so much we're scared to talk about money or to make money. The real fear is what people think about us. That's the deeper fear. It's like, what's worse than death? public speaking. Why? It's what people will think about you. It's the judgment. So when I talk to people about it and I go deeper with them and, and there's a trust built and everything, and I start talking about money, I go, what really is it? And you're like, it's not that I don't want to make money, but I'm afraid of what my staff will think, what my friends will think, what my colleagues will think. And it's almost this deeper perspective that is ingrained with us over the years in school, that and it's not business school, let's face it, over the years in school around this idea that money is somehow bad if it's too much. It's okay, we should get paid, but it can't be too much. So who's defining too much? It's us, we're defining too much, and it's hard for us to define too much when we're in this altruistic, I wanna do good, field, but we don't look at money as good, even though if the association wants to raise money, 
they're not talking to the broke people. They're talking to the people that have money. And it takes money to live. It takes money to do all these. It takes money to grow your business. It takes money to give bonuses. And yet there's just like this thing with inside us that makes no sense. It's completely irrational. And it's only until someone like myself, a coach, that really shines the light back at them that they become aware of this and then they can progress through it if they choose to overcome that uncomfortableness. Yeah. And that checks out too, by the way. And, and for perspective, you know, I always find this really fascinating because for perspective, when you think about the population of the U.S., it's only five or 6% of the overall planet. And the interesting part of this perspective is that what you're talking about is a uniquely Western thing. You know, in the Eastern world, money is not seen as a zero-sum game. I win, you lose, or anything like that. It's really more like, hey, there's enough in the pot for all of us. Let's just create a bunch of value. And what's ironic about this is that, so in the Western world, people are afraid of failure. I, and again, I'm making broad stereotypes, but having invested in 56 countries, I feel like we kind of know this. And the other part of this that's really interesting is the United States is actually the least scary place to fail, despite that psychology that exists here. Because here we have bankruptcy laws, right? We have all sorts of rules that actually protect you if something goes wrong. That's baked into our code as a country for 100 plus years. And yeah, somebody listening to this can be like, oh, but Paul, right? But compare that to India, for example, country of $1.6 billion. You fail there, aside from the social stigma that will come, you're never released from those debts. You're paying them off. Go to Japan, go to Japan. And like, just culturally, forget about the financial stuff. You're basically an outcast if you fail. You're never going to get married. doesn't matter if you're a guy or girl, because your family's going to say, look at the dishonor or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, it's interesting. It, it really just kind of proves the point that especially in the U.S. anyways, the number one barrier to success is not some external factor. It's not some bigger competitor or something like that. It's just, it's that little lizard brain, that little voice coming out of your lizard brain. That lizard brain <laughs> controls everything. <laughs> That's right. And here's the hard part and all the books, all the psychology books, and I love reading the psychology books. They all talk about the idea that we're, of course, emotional creatures, and every decision you make is an emotional one. It's just quickly justified rationally because it has to be. Yet, the people that really struggle with the stuff that we're talking about, money, profitability, looking at metrics, being accountable and all that, are the smart people. It's the high IQ, very intelligent, a lot of schooling. Of course, not necessarily schooling in business and Wall Street and, and tech companies, like not necessarily that schooling. So we don't blame schooling itself. But it is a part of academia. Like, I remember used to hear that um, when people had A's in classes, they're like, you know, people who get A's work for people who get C's. And for the life of me, I could never understand that being someone that has gotten both grades. Yeah. And I've gotten below C's. I'm an outcast in my own field, but I have gotten A's <laughs> and I have been competitive about my studies because that's what you need to do to follow the academic path. And then I get out. And I'm hanging with all these entrepreneur and weird people, especially in Austin. And half the people didn't finish high school. They just got GEDs. Most of them didn't go to college. Some did. And if you just look at their lives and what they're doing, what they're creating, it's like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. And it started to hit me because I had an ego going into these masterminds initially because you know I was smarter than most of them. But if you look at the bank account, look at their lifestyle, look at their life, I'm like, Shit, they're hitting some goals that, that I'm not hitting here. And it's not because I'm not smart, but it's they're more open to collaborate. 
I think that's a big one. Collaboration is huge. They're more open, not that they want to fail, but they don't look at failing. They look at, okay, I'm going to learn something here and then I'm going to keep going because they have grit. They have courage. They have the, what am I going back to? I got nothing to go back to. Whereas us, you know, sometimes I put my clients at ease and I go, what's the worst that can happen here? You could have a solo practice. You'll be busy because you're good at your craft. Keep your overhead extremely low and you can make a really great living if that's what you want. But if you want to stay in business, then the first thing you have to do is respect business. And too many of the people that I talk to do not respect business. Their ego is too high. Their smartness is too much. And they think they can translate it into business. And it couldn't be further from the truth. It is polar opposite. You're thinking clinically than you're thinking business. And that's the tough part we have to come over. And if you engage in that, Paul, man, it, the world is your oyster. There's some very successful people that are in physical therapy and such. And uh, so I agree, by the way, you know, I think people need to be, and this is true of clinic owners, tech business owners, whatever, any business owner is all the same, really. It's just don't be romantic about how you make your money. So let's actually, let's use this as an example. So um, you talked about that client of yours that you spoke to and you made it sound so easy. You're like, oh, I immediately saw that there was this process she's not following. I, then you, you explained, she called you back and you said, great, do it three times. So let's just kind of play this out because I don't want you to like, tell me anything about her business or whatever, I, you know, secret. I've had the same conversation with hundreds of people. It's a very That's right. consistent conversation that I have, that my coaches have. It's very obvious that I, I can share with you. Yeah, see, that would be really interesting. So let's pretend I've got a clinic. I'm the owner. I'm seeing patients every day and at night and doing the documentation and all that other stuff. Like I started this thing because I thought I was going to have freedom because that's, I thought Shark Tank, you know, entrepreneurship, the Bentley, whatever it is. But I've just now created a worse job than I had. <laughs> so I call you and I say, hey man, my goal is to be able to shut down by five o'clock every night and hang with my kids. So all things equal, make some assumptions here. How do you start to probe to figure out what I'm doing wrong? Like I've got a full schedule. I thought I had a good business, but now this is more work than that job I had <laughs> as a PT at the local hospital. So walk me through what you would ask me if that was the goal. I want to end at five and hang out with my kids for the evening. You opened up your practice and what you want is freedom. And in my world, freedom means choice. So you wanted choice. You wanted choice over, I imagine you wanted choice over your time. You want to take off, you don't have to ask a supervisor, right? You want to show up late, you change your schedule, you show up late, you don't have to get permission. You want a choice for the type of people you wanted to see. Yes, we should be somebody that we can see everybody, but the reality is there's certain people that we best fit. And in other places, you don't choose the people you see, they do. But in your own business, you get to choose the people. You also get to choose your colleagues. You know, when you work for a hospital system or another place, someone else is hiring them. In your own business, you're choosing who you want to work for you. So, and the other thing I imagine you want is you want to choose your income. You don't want your income to be just capped. You don't want your income to say you're worth 70,000 or 80,000 or whatever the number is. You want your income to be uncapped. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, for me, I want my freedom. I want, I want the flexibility to take the later flight if my kids are having a good time at the, the pool at Disney or something like that. 
Well, excellent. And I think every person in business should want that. Because what I believe is your business, your practice is designed to do one thing. That's give you a better life. It doesn't mean you're going to deliver less service. It doesn't mean you're not going to have a great team. That's all part of it. So let me ask you a question then. So what's preventing you from doing it? I'm not sure how to balance it all and who to hire first. Margins are thin. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if anybody's going to ever care as much as I do. So that's why I don't know. Do I hire a front desk person? Do I hire a marketer, an assistant? I, I don't know. I'm stuck. I'm just stuck. Well, there's two places we have to start. Number one, we got to get clarity. Clarity is not ambiguous. Clarity is as objective as we can get. And where you get clarity is through metrics. It's through numbers. It's through key performance indicators, whatever the heck you want to call them, statistics. So the first thing we have to do is look at, well, how have you been doing? Not what you think you've been doing, because maybe you're wrong. I don't know. So we have to get clear on some numbers. So we have to go through a dashboard. We have to go through with your metrics. And let's see what your metrics are saying. Because you might be surprised. There might be some things you're doing really well, and I imagine you are. And there might be other areas that aren't. So that once we identify what those areas are, then we can step back and say, okay, well, how are you producing those results, right? Some results you're producing that you're like, this is great. Maybe you're getting tons of reviews from clients. That's wonderful. We don't want that to stop. But there are other things that you're producing that you don't want, such as we're not producing enough referrals. So we can look back and start to identify, well, what's preventing us from getting referrals? And here's where it's going to hit for you. We all have a finite amount of time. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Yep. We all have the same amount of time. Yet there's billionaires and there's people broke. What's the difference? Primarily the difference is it's how they're using their time and where they're focusing their time. And what I would venture to say is that you're focusing your time on what you know. And what you know is being an amazing clinician. And the reason you're an amazing clinician is not an accident. Did you go to undergrad school? Yes. Did you major in some science? Yes. Did you do well? Yes. Did you get into PT school? Yes. Did you do well? Yes. Did you pass the boards? Yes. Then you got a job. What'd you do? You learned even more. You perhaps have some credentials after your name. You treated a bunch of people. You learned more. And then you went into business. And how much investment in time and money have you made learning the business of physical therapy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not much. Not much. Like, you know, I've got QuickBooks. That's wonderful. <laughs> QuickBooks is wonderful. I had QuickBooks too when I had my practice. And guess what? I'm the one that did QuickBooks. Do you think I'm a QuickBook expert? No, I was sucked. My goal was to be within two to $3,000 off every month. Swear to God, that was my goal. So the reality is, if we kind of just get to it, the reality is the results you're getting is determined by where you're focusing your time. I would say you're focusing your time on delivering care. And when you're delivering care, which is very noble, very nice, but then you have the notes that come with the care, the questions and the reporting and the calls that come with the care. So you're spending most of your time in patient care. But guess what? Patient care is only one aspect of business. There's also marketing. There's also conversion. There's also building a team and hiring and developing systems and processes and understanding your metrics and your numbers. There's all types of stuff 
that isn't being addressed at all. So if you want to really hit the goals that you're talking about, you have to start changing where you focus your time. And that means we have to start delegating some of the things that are on your plate. So that would be the first exercise that I would go through is looking at where you spend your time and let's start moving the things that are the easiest to move, the things you don't particularly like to do and you're not good at doing. I have a feeling QuickBooks is one of them. And then look at how we can properly delegate, not just hire someone to throw it at them, but properly delegate, open up time, and then use that time to focus on the things that's going to move your business towards getting yourself out of there by five o'clock and maybe perhaps working four days in a week instead of five. And oh, by the way, making more money. Yeah. So I see where you're going. You, you sort of like paint the picture of sort of confirm what I wanted and then you're moving it towards metrics because because at the beginning of the call, I wasn't sure if I needed metrics. And now you've convinced me that like nobody ever wakes up and says, gosh, I really want to do my metrics. But you're you're really sort of tying that you're sort of like setting the stage to say, we're going to have to do the metrics and it's, we got to understand the business. So let me fast forward a little bit here. When I'm talking to another founder or CEO, and this may not be fair, but it's kind of what happens in real life, right? You know, you just sort of, you're talking to somebody and in my mind, if they don't know these four numbers on their business, I'm not investing. So for example, they need to know without a hesitation, like within 5% of actual, what's their cost of acquiring a new customer? What's the expected lifetime value? What's their monthly revenue for the prior three months? And what's the churn rate? So that's how I think about it, like on the tech and software side of things. Is there some sort of similar heuristic that you think about? Like if I put 10 clinic owners in front of you, you've been doing this for so long, you've talked to thousands of people. Is there like a set of two, three, or five metrics where you're like, man, if somebody knows that, if a practice owner knows those numbers, they're going to make it. Is that something you think about? Like what are those metrics that you... Like if I want to be a badass, big boy, big girl CEO of a, of a clinic or chain of clinics, what numbers do I need to keep an eye on? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to have a profitable business model. Another word for saying business models, treatment model. When I first started coaching, let's face it, I mean, just like when I was uh, opening my clinic, I don't care who you were. If you had a pulse and insurance I'm taking you as a client and the pulse is optional. As long as you have an insurance I can bill, you're a client. So, you know, in coaching, my criteria was very loose. You're a practice owner and you're willing to invest. I'm going to take you. And then I started to realize we had some churn. We had a big churn rate. We had a lot of people who would would leave after the, the minimum time with us, whether it's six months or a year, they would say, hey, Jamie, thanks. I learned a lot. I had plenty to do. And I'm just like, this doesn't make any sense. And what I realized is a big part of value, of course, is getting a return on investment. And I'm looking at these clinics and I started to do reviews of these clinics that left. And there was something very, very in common with them all. Their treatment model was broke, meaning that they did everything right. They could generate referrals. They could convert referrals into new patients. They convert a new patient into a plan of care. They could bill properly and they could collect. But guess what? Their hourly revenue wasn't more than what it was costing them to deliver the care. Right. Yes. So they did everything great, but one thing, their treatment model, which really comes down to how many patients can you treat in an hour or a day or a week? compared to what it costs you to deliver care didn't work 
and they refuse to change it. They refuse or they don't know that they need to change it? Oh, we told them. Or both. Oh, okay, okay. That's one thing we do as coaches is our job, and I changed the way I do discovery calls. So now one of the questions that I ask when I'm speaking with prospective clients is I ask, what's your treatment model? And of course, I usually have to say a couple of follow-up questions because some people don't know, understand what that means. But we get down to how many patients can you see in an hour? And how much do you make on average per patient? If that number isn't at least three times, getting back to your 3X multiple, three times what it costs you for the therapist to treat them, your model's broke and this isn't going to work. I talked to someone the other day and I said, you know what? I can't take you on as a client. And they weren't even asking. They were just talking to me. They're like, well, wait a minute. Why not? I go, your model's broken. I said, you're going to come in here. You're going to work your butt off. You're going to do everything we say. And you're still going to be broke and you're going to leave. And you're going to say that didn't work. And I said, I don't want that for you. I go, you change your model. Then you come back and we'll help you. And I told him exactly what he had to do to change his model. So that's a big thing for people that come out of school, come out of work with this ideal. Paul, I don't know where the damn ideal comes from. Maybe, I don't know, professors or whatever. This ideal (laughs) that one patient an hour is somehow this virtuous, I am good. I like quality. Hold up. Time out. I call bullshit. How can you say one patient an hour is quality, but you are spending thousands of dollars a year better educating yourself and getting credentials that allows you to do better care quicker. I learned this when I was working for the hospital. We did one patient an hour. And I'm like, okay, one patient an hour. When I first got out of school, yeah, maybe I needed that because I didn't have a lot of skills. But once I started getting skills, I'm like, yeah, but I can help you in 15 minutes. What the hell am I going to do for 45 minutes? So I had to make stuff up to do for 45 minutes because we're paid on time. We're not paid on results. We're not paid on value. And that is a mindset that is still brewed in us that somehow it's this one hour, like time equals results. I'd rather come to you, Paul, and you fix me in 10 minutes and write you a check for 400 bucks than to come there for 12 times for an hour and write a check for 20 bucks every time I come because my time is too valuable. And yet that's what we're saying to people. We're saying, come longer but there's no research, there's no support and evidence that says time somehow equals results. And yet there are so many practice owners that are creating business models and they're starting out of the gate failing and they don't even realize it because they're staying around this virtue instead of looking at the metrics. You should create your treatment model, meaning I'll throw out a number. If you are 85% busy, even 80% busy, meaning the number of slots you have on your calendar, 80% are taken, multiplied by the average amount of money you get per visit. If that isn't significant enough to give you a minimum 20% profit margin, your model's broken. Don't even open. Don't even open up. You're going to work too hard and you're going to work too hard for too little. You're going to stress yourself out. You're going to have trouble hiring, retaining people. You're going to have trouble marketing because you're not going to have time because you're going to have to work a lot. Your home life is going to get crushed. Trust me, I lived it. And I've seen too many other people live it. Fortunately, we were able to help a lot of them. But sometimes we can't help people because it's not up to me to change your business model. It's up to you. 
that right there is the model that I was looking for. It's you know that 80% number you talked about, multiplying and all that. That's exactly it. Because if the napkin math doesn't work, then you don't really have to get more specific. <laughs> you know, it's like... Because there's the metrics though. My number one metric I use is utilization. Utilization is a productivity metric, which means if we were 100% busy, how many people could we see? But being 100% busy isn't realistic. 80, 85 is realistic. That's reasonable. So how much money would come in if we're at 85%? And if it's not significant profit, not this crap that people are touting out there 10%, 11%, that's not enough money. That might be enough money for you to live. I mean, not where I live in, in Montgomery County, Maryland, but it might be enough money for you to live, but it's not enough money to then grow your business. It's not enough money to reinvest. It's not enough money to put away a rainy day fund. It's not enough money to expand. It's not enough money. We have to have a business model, I believe, that's 20% minimum. Most of our clients, and I do mean most of them, are in the 20s. Because if they're not, this isn't going to work. Yeah. There's easier ways to make money if it's not profitable. And if you're in business not to make money, then just say it. I don't care about money. I just want to treat people. Then you know what? Treat them. Treat them for free. That's fine. See, it's your prerogative. I respect the business of physical therapy. I respect it. I respect it as much as I respect the industry of physical therapy from a clinical side. I respect both of them equally. And yet when I went into business, when I opened up my doors, I didn't respect it. I just thought because I was smart, I like to call myself a business owner. My dad owned a small business before he went bankrupt. I was like, I can do this. And I got my ass handed to me because I didn't know what I was doing because I didn't put any time and effort into learning it. I just thought I could do it and just provide, quote, good care and people would just come and everything would just be fine. And I got crushed in the business. I got crushed by my staff, my home life. Oh my God, it caused more problems in my marriage and my family than anything. Because the amount of stress you have, especially financial stress, man, there's nothing like that. The crazy part to me, again, as a relatively new person to healthcare, you know, the crazy part to me is that the numbers in healthcare are way bigger than tech. So for example, I'll just use an example that people might recognize. Let's use Peloton, the bike and treadmill and all that stuff, right? Monthly subscription, $44 a month, you know, you pay two, three grand to buy the the hardware, you know, and all that stuff. But ultimately, the recurring revenue, that new customer that comes in is really worth 44 times 12. I can't do the math quickly here, but let's call that $500 plus a year is what that customer's worth. Again, putting aside that other initial expense and stuff. Well, it's more than that because you know they keep it longer than one year. Bingo. That's where I was going with this is that like Peloton, what, love them or hate them, is a massive company, multi-billions of dollars, air quotes, just on a customer that spends about four or $500 a month, I'm sorry, a year with that company. And their churn rate's probably pretty low, so they stayed for a couple of years. Now, let's put this into context. I pulled some data a couple of days ago for somebody, uh, one of our clients. And uh, for example, in Florida, where the sample set that I pulled, you know, across Florida, average reimbursement per visit's like 102, $102. And average number of visits per episode is, you know, somewhere around the eight mark, if I remember right. And if you actually like model it out, it's 
statistically, it's actually between six and 12, with the median being, I think, seven or eight or something like that. So the point is, every new patient that comes in is worth at least seven times $100, right? So $700 at least. And the reality is that they're typically going to have a couple more than one episodes per year. So the point is, though, is that like just high level napkin math from a tech guy coming into healthcare, it's like the tech world's built massive businesses off of customers that will spend $600 of their own money on a recurring subscription. And then you come over to healthcare and you're like, every time they really need a PT's help or, you know, OT's help, that healthcare payer is on the hook for six, $700 per on average. And they're going to, so anyway, the point is though, is it's insane to me. The numbers are so much bigger here. And yet to your point, I would agree with you. I think people just are being a little bit romantic about, I want to treat people and not the business. They're not thinking about the business. But Paul, to your example, assuming those numbers are accurate, but to your example, first of all, Peloton also is a scalable model because you can hire 20 experts in cycling, use technology, and they could go to thousands and thousands of people all at once. Whereas we cannot do that in the brick and mortar model. Now we know other models are coming. They're pretty much here. Things are going to disrupt the living daylights out of this industry for sure. Maybe you're one of them. Who knows? But when I hear $700 as the value of a pick, because you and I were just talking, the average is about 1000 to 1200 When I hear 700 if I don't hear at least two people an hour consistently at 85 to 90% utilization, I'll tell you right now, it's a broken model. They're not making any money. I don't care how many clinics they have. It costs too much to deliver care for the value of that person to be solely $700, especially insurance-based because it costs so much to get the money from the insurance company. And that's what I hear. I hear, I'm getting about $90 a visit. I said, okay, well, how many visits can you treat in a normally eight-hour day? Oh, about eight. Well, seven, because we give them an hour to do paperwork. I go, I've had people tell me that. Seven is the max per day at $90 or $95 a visit. And it's insurance base. And they give them time to do paperwork. I go, what the hell are they doing for an hour? Can't they do some, some type on a computer during that time? It's unbelievable. And I know the stresses of business ownership. I know that a lot of therapists are coming out there that don't want to see a lot of people. But seven or eight a day under a hundred dollars. I mean, you know, if someone asked me and someone did last week saying, so Jamie, what is that number? If I did hourly, what is that number? I would say that number has to be at least a hundred twenty-five to $35. If it was one an hour, at least. That's probably right. Yeah. And you're absolutely right, by the way, that they are different models and it's unfair to compare them, right? Because one's more scalable. That is totally fair. And I apologize if I made that or implied that. What I was really trying to get at is, is that the lower your revenue per visit, or in this case with, Pel let's just use Peloton as an example, or tech companies as an example, the less revenue per customer you get per month or year, the more you need. So for example, for a software company, let's say selling $44 a month software, putting aside profit for just a minute, they need like 2,000 clients a month just to be able to hit a million dollars a year in revenue. Conversely, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying to your point of utilization, to get to that same or similar amount of revenue, putting aside profit for just a minute, which is super important, you don't need thousands of new customers a month. You need to 
not screw it up with the hundred patients you might get per month and try to get them in there for six to eight visits, you know, per episode. The poorly articulated point I'm just trying to make is, is that you're right. It's about the utilization. And that's the part that I don't think people understand. And I wish there was a way, maybe that's something you and I should work on at some point is like, what is that sort of financial model? What is the open source financial model that everybody should be looking at if they're going to start up a practice? Because that would probably get rid of most of the tire kickers real quick. Yeah. So one thing I, I decided when I started to getting into the coaching world and the business training world, as I said, because I know there's companies out there that say, we are going to show you and tell you the treatment model we want you to do, the business model we want you to do. There's guys out there, ladies out there, whatever, that are doing that. And I said, you know what? I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I have that spirit. I don't want to force people to do something because that limits their creativity, that limits their ability to innovate. That's not what I'm about because maybe they come up with something just really cool and innovative and all that. But here's the thing. The success principles of business are the success principles of business. And I don't really care what business you have. And as long as it fits these models, such as, well, how much does this make an hour? And how much does it cost to deliver the service? If the number doesn't equal 2.830, then we're going to have to look deeper because there's only a couple ways to make more money besides cut your staff, which you can't do that. So what do you have to do? Either charge more slash collect more or see more. It's your choice, but you can't collect less and see less. That's a recipe for disaster. And that's exactly what so many people are doing. And I think the best model that I've seen, at least in the physical therapy market, is your typical two patients an hour, 14 patients a day, getting anywhere from $85 to $100 a visit at 85% utilization, paying your staff well, having some bonuses or stuff like that in there, paying insurance. That model... Like when I hired someone, I was talking to somebody the other day, when I hired someone, you know what I saw? $252,000 because that was the exact number based on what we were getting paid and how many visits they had to see, what we agreed on that they had to see per day, per week, per month. It was $252,000. So that's what I saw. If I wanted a million dollar business, I needed four physical therapists full-time at 85% utilization. So that took Jamie out of the equation. It doesn't matter if I was treating or not treating. Frankly, the reason I didn't want to treat is because no one else could do the other stuff that had to be done to make sure these people were seeing 60 visits a week and we were collecting and we were hiring the right people and the people were supported enough with the systems and the checklists and the things like that. And we were building relationships with the people out there. So this is what I mean by just being serious about being in business, because when you're doing that, it becomes a heck of a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to another episode of Strata Stories. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. If you'd like to learn more about Strata, head over to stratapt.com or email us at hello at stratapt.com.